Eisenhower's era is often viewed as this kind of golden age by American historians. And there's an extent to which that's true. Um, he builds the interstate highway system, which um, you know t- takes the country and really brings it into this modern era where people can travel so quickly to so many places. It's also part of the building of the suburbs. And so that's you know the post-war, there's people who've received free education under the GI Bill and a lot of benefits for veterans um, end up with people living in these houses in the suburbs. Um, of course, the other side of this is that it's a massive program of segregation that's built by the U.S. government starting under Franklin Roosevelt, who, uh, add another asterisk in there, supports the program of redlining, um, where black neighborhoods in the cities um, are denied mortgages. And at the same time, huge subsidies are being given to white families out in the suburbs that let them own houses. And to this day, the 10 to 1 disparity in wealth between black and white families is the legacy of those decisions that were taken under FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, um, mostly because they were getting the votes of racist um, Southern and Northern Congress people. Um, but you know, Eisenhower's era is like the golden era for white guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, for black people, it's an era of really harsh segregation. For women, it's an era of, hey, you were Rosie the Riveter, but now we're back from war, so why don't you get back in the kitchen and take your Valium so that you don't get too hysterical. Um, And it's also the era of McCarthyism, which is the real fear that communists are controlling the United States secretly, which in the context of everything we were just talking about under Truman, you can understand why this obsession with communism abroad would lead to this obsession with communism in the United States. Um, And there were communist spies, uh, obviously, who the Soviet Union um, had paid or recruited. Um, Most famously, um, a guy named Whitaker Chambers, uh, who... Uh, was a State Department official, and um, eventually confesses to be a to having been a communist spy. He testifies before this committee called the House Un-American Activities Committee, which just sounds like George Orwell, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, 1984, written in 1948, in the middle of the uh, Truman administration. Um, uh, this committee is about trying to find communists and. There are a number of communists who are rooted out, but there's also this whole movement of like people in Hollywood being accused of being communists. And we should also notice that for the House Un-American Activities Commission, being a communist and being a Soviet spy were just sort of blurred. And there's like a pretty big difference between those two things, especially when you think about the fact that like during the Great Depression, when there was this huge push for these big government programs, you know, being a socialist or a communist wasn't that far outside the mainstream. And so a lot of people who'd become involved in communist organizations then, and then as, you know, the horrors of Stalinism came to light, they left the communist party, still were being brought in front of this committee and asked, are you now or have you ever been a member of the communist party? Some people were put to death. The Rosenbergs were a couple who were accused of being communists and they were put to death on the electric chair. And it's not even clear that they were guilty. And the leader of that movement was a guy named Joseph McCarthy, uh, who basically made his career by 
um, scaring people um, about the possibility of communist infiltrators. He famously stood up and he said, I hold in my hand a list of dozens, I forget the number. He said, I, he had a very exact number. Like, I hold in my hand a list of 148 communists who are in the United States government. And everyone's like, let us see that list. And he's like, nope. Because <laughs> it, it was fake. But it was great political theater. And it made McCarthy very popular within the what was considered hard anti-communist right wing, which included uh, a lot of former anti-FDR type of conservatives and also veterans and um, you know uh, people who viewed the Cold War as a real war that was coming and that we needed to be ready for. And one of them was a young veteran named Richard Nixon, who at 35, um, or even younger, ends up in the Senate. Um, and he was known as Tricky Dick because he became, he won a lot of campaigns by using quasi-McCarthyist tactics to paint his opponents, who were Democrats, as communist. He, he like, he, it was called pink sheeting, where he would have these, like, Oh, I can't really explain pink sheeting. <laughs> um, he he would he would make all of these claims that basically anyone he was running against was a communist, and um, it made him very popular with the hard right. And at thirty nine, he's chosen to be the vice president under Dwight Eisenhower, who's this kind of apolitical figure. And then you have this young anti communist. Bulldog, And, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, as part of being general, would run for president and he would never negatively campaign. He would just talk about, like, his policies and he would say, I'm a conservative, but I'm a very liberal conservative. And Richard Nixon was, like, an unapologetic anti-communist. And that helped get the support of really conservative folks, especially in California. Mm. Um, so that helped get Eisenhower elected. And so, like... We have to hold in our minds both the like, ugh, wasn't it great when we had a president who wasn't really a Democrat or Republican and who just helped build up the economy and brought the country together and also like rabid anti-communism, which Eisenhower um, was against McCarthy, but he was quiet because he knew that members of his own party were in support. The other thing about Eisenhower was that you know, he helped end the Korean War, and there was kind of a reaction against during this time, like, um, let's not get into another massive military conflict. But what he did do instead was he supported um, lots of CIA activities, assassinating and removing leaders in other countries who we thought of as dangerous or communist. Um, notably, um, he began the process of trying to... Um, kill or prevent Castro from coming to power in Cuba. And the Cuban revolution is taking place at the end of Eisenhower's time. Um, also in 1956, um, he supports a CIA coup to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Iran, a guy named Mohammad Mossadegh. Um, and Mossadegh was not a communist, but he was a left-leaning um, doctor who had been elected in Iran uh, with some of the promise that he would nationalize the oil. And oil during World War II and after is becoming such an important part of U.S. foreign policy. We need access to oil. 
um, both because our military has become so large and relies on it and because we're now in the age of the car and we need gasoline and because oil corporations are some of the most powerful and wealthy organizations in the world. And so the Shah of Iran was a pro-Western um, dictator um, who the U.S. put in place after there was a coup against their elected leader who said he might take some of the oil money for Iranian people. And instead, the Shah signs deals with um, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Corporation um, and helps ensure the flow of oil, which is one of those things where it's like, oh, let's file that away because suddenly... Um, 23 years later, when there's a huge revolution in Iran and people are like burning American flags and saying death to America and people are like, where is this coming from? It's like, well, the CIA overthrew your government that and put in place the dictator who's been putting people in prison. And that was very core to the Eisenhower style of foreign policy. There were a lot of assassinations in Latin America uh, under um Eisenhower, and there's just this growth of this intelligence services who are trying to root out communists and who have a lot of power. And in Eisenhower's final um, speech as president, his farewell address, which is after George Washington's farewell address, the most famous final speech that a president has given, he warns that there is what he calls a military-industrial complex that is controlling the United States government. And he says, my message to you as I leave office is we need to be aware of the fact that the military and corporations and the intelligence services are becoming so powerful that they could undermine our democracy. And if you think about the fact that this man was the general who won World War II, and here he is, on, and the guy who ordered all of these CIA strikes, that the last message he wants to leave to the United States is be careful, the military is becoming too powerful and the intelligence services are becoming too powerful and they're in league with corporations and he's a Republican, it makes that speech kind of haunting. If he hadn't given this speech, I wonder how we would view his legacy with the CIA. Because in some ways he, to people who are skeptical of the military and of the intelligence services, is seen as a good man for warning us of this even as he participated in a big way in doing so. And, and in getting us involved in low-level conflicts all around the world, including you know, during his presidency, um, the French war to retain their colonial control of Vietnam, which was then called French Indochina, um, he starts sending US troops in to support the French. And that is what is gonna grow into the Vietnam War. Um, so Eisenhower is a complicated and interesting guy. Um, and ultimately, he, I think, is remembered more for just his like general style than for the policies that happened under him. And like many military um, presidents, that very feeling that he's kind of detached from politics makes him seem detached from the policies that are happening in his administration. And there's some truth to that, that like a lot of the policies were actually being driven by other people. Um, but I think we also let him off the hook for some of those things. Uh, in defense of Eisenhower, he uh, was a man whose moral compass um, on issues of race um, was pretty clear. He spoke out regularly in favor of 
uh, integration. He continued to support the integration of the armed forces. Um, he ended up sending troops down to integrate um, Little Rock High School after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which comes down during his presidency. Um, but of course, it's going to take a much bigger movement, uh, and we don't hear from him condemnation of the segregation laws in the South themselves, at least not in a big enough way that legislation is going to be passed to stop that. And so the Eisenhower era is kind of the time when the beginnings of the civil rights movement are coming. And those movement, that movement is being led by people like Rosa Parks and a young Martin Luther King um, and Medgar Evers who are not in government, not politically connected in any way, um, but are starting the resistance. <laughs>